Good morning, saints. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 is our text this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. I invite you now to hear and receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. He is the only true God, and this is his word. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let us read the text one more time. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Pray with me, please. God, eternally existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are great, and the salvation that you provide is great. So Lord, teach us about the beauty, and the glory, and the splendor, and the weightiness of this beautiful salvation that you have given to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord, your beloved Son. Give us insight that we've never seen before. Give us greater appreciation. Give us humility as we consider what you have done to display and what you will do to display the immeasurable riches of your grace in the ages to come. Teach us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It is rather an odd thing for Christians to advocate for the exclusive worship of the triune God unless that triune God is solely responsible for their salvation. Or let me put it in the form of a question rather than a proposition. Why should Christians contend that praise should be rendered alone to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, if this triune God is not the lone cause for the Christian's conversion and transformation. It is unintelligible to argue for the exclusive worship of 
the God of the Bible on one hand, but then to reject his sovereign and active plan, purpose, and power in salvation of sinners on the other hand. Beloved, one's understanding of how God works in salvation either helps or hinders their worship of God. If God alone has saved you, then he alone must be the object of your worship. And if God is the single object of worthy, or if God is the single object worthy of your praise, then he must be both the cause and sustainer of your salvation. This is ultimately what Ephesians chapter 2 teaches us. And this is what we've been learning over the past couple weeks. Look with me, if you will, at verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2. Remember what it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Verse 1 speaks of our spiritual death, that, that we were dead in the trespasses and sins. Verse 2 reminds us that this was the way in which we walked, the way in which we conducted ourselves, the way in which we regularly behaved as we, we once walked in wicked and worldly ways, being led by Satan as we did the evil deeds that our hearts desire. And verse 3 tells us that we were by nature children of wrath. What does that mean? In other words, our natural status as men and women is deserving of the wrath of God. That's what that's saying. And that's what we don't like to hear because we want to believe that there's something, even if it's a small something, that is good about us naturally. But once the fall occurred, that is no longer the case. If you want to check me, look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. God himself says so. But we don't stop there. Praise the Lord. The very next verses in verses 4 through 6 proclaim, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, yes, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. These three verses are beautiful. The main idea of these three verses is simply this, but God made us alive together with Christ. But that's not all it says, huh? Wonder why? Because Paul understands that this, this salvation is amazing. It's great. It's unbelievable. And this salvation is so great that Paul, led by the Spirit of God, cannot 
help but to qualify almost every word and expound upon almost every thought that comes to his mind. So he starts with, but God. And then he says, you know, the one whose very being consists of immeasurable mercy, that God made us alive together with Christ. Well, why did he do this? Well, he tells us in verse 4, it's because of the great love with which he loved us. Why did God save you? Because he chose to. Because he chose to set his love upon you. He, he chose to set his affectionate, salvific love on you, Christian. Oh, and by the way, he did this even when we were dead in our trespasses such that he made us alive with Christ. And then at this point, Paul just gets too excited. He has to exclaim a reality that he will come back to later in verse 8 in our text. But he says, by grace you have been saved. It's a little preview, if you will, of what's to come in our passage. And after that declaration, Paul can, continues with his list of how God sovereignly made us spiritual participants with Christ. Not only has God made us alive with Christ, but he has also raised us up with him. He has also seated us with him in the heavenly places, and that's all in Christ Jesus. Well, why did God do that? Verse 7 tells us. And really, verse 7 is the verse that is the launching pad for us to rightly understand our passage in verses 8 through 10. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7. So that... He did this, he made us alive together with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I think Pastor Jeff said of this verse last week that those whom God saves are his trophies in the coming ages. In other words, God made particular people alive with Christ in the past, and God is making particular people alive with Christ in the present so that in the future, the vastness of God's grace toward those in Christ will be on display everlastingly. That's why. And this brings us to the main idea of our text. In Ephesians... Chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, God explains why in the future he will show off or display the glory of his grace and salvation such that you might boast and delight solely in him in the present. Or we could put it this way. God saved his people to display his grace and verses 8 through 10 provide an explanation of that reality. We're going to divide that explanation that we find in verses 8 through 10 into six facets of salvation, which is provided for you in your outline. We're going to look at the foundation of salvation, the certainty of salvation, 
the means of salvation, the giver of salvation, the goal of salvation, and finally the practice of salvation. And this is my prayer. My prayer is that each of us would have a better understanding or at least a fresher sense of God's glory and salvation such that our boast and our delight would be in the Lord alone as a result of our time in his word this morning. May God help us. Let's begin with the foundation of salvation. The first part of verse 8, those first three words, for by grace. For by grace. The term for is what indicates for us, the reader, that Paul is giving an explanation of his claim that God saved his chosen people to display his grace in the ages to come. Well, what kind of grace is this? You can find the word grace throughout the Bible and depends on the context. It can be used various ways, but this is a divine grace. This is God's grace. It's divine grace that is the foundation of salvation. And the context clearly tells us that the kind of grace that Paul is talking about is God's grace, divine grace. Divine grace. Remember in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. In verse 5, he makes it explicit, by grace you have been saved in the context of speaking of God saving the church. And then in verse 7, it's the immeasurable riches of his grace, of God's grace. Clearly, Paul is talking about the grace of God. What is grace then? When referring to that which God grants to sinners whom he has chosen and called. What is this grace? We could say that God's grace is God's beneficent demeanor or his beneficent disposition toward his people, which is tangibly displayed or revealed. It's good for us to remember that when we speak of God's grace toward sinners, this grace is always always undeserved and unmerited. In the context of our passage, God speaks of one who freely and voluntarily, without any obligation outside of himself, grants a gift to another. Beloved, I'm afraid that we are often tempted to think of grace primarily in abstract ways. Grace is something out there. It's a, something that exists in theory. However, there is biblical warrant to think of grace in personal terms. Dare I say that we, we must think of grace in personal terms if we're going to rightly understand and consider salvation? Let me give you at least two texts that I think will make this clear. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Some of the most famous verses of the Bible come out of this chapter. We understand it starts out within the beginning, the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and 
The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then later on in chapter 1, verse 14, where we get some measure of clarification about who this Word is. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That speaks of the incarnation of the living Word of God and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen as we continue on in verses 14 through 18. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory... Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Look at verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Christ, has made him known. Interesting for you to know that the only time the term grace appears in the Gospel of John are these four instances in this passage right here. And he's showing us that grace is personal. Namely, grace speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's look at one more passage if we are to consider the grace of God in personal times. Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. Verses 11 through 14. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, reads, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, not just the Jews, but for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. For the grace of God has appeared. I would argue that that grace of God and its appearance is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We have to think of grace in terms of personal grace we are going to consider salvation rightly. Listen to what the theological dictionary of the New Testament's understanding of Paul's use of the term grace is. It says, Paul specifically uses the word grace to expound the structure of the salvation event. The linguistic starting point is the sense of making glad by gifts, or of showing free, unmerited grace. Paul orients himself not to the question of the nature of God, but rather to the historical manifestation of salvation in Christ. He does not speak of the gracious God. He speaks of the grace that is actualized in the cross of Christ, and that is an actual event and proclamation. If God's favor is identical with the crucifixion, 
If God's favor is identical with the crucifixion, or I would add the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then its absoluteness is established. We are saved by grace alone. Grace is shown to the sinner. It is the totality of salvation. Every Christian has it. Praise the Lord. Beloved, let us consider what I would call the personal aspect of God's grace. For by grace alone, the personal grace of God, you have been saved. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us to the certainty of salvation. Continuing in verse 8, the next four words, it says, For by grace you have been saved. You have been saved. This was mentioned last week, but it's too good not to mention again. It's glorious. These four simple words, two words in the Greek, words matter, saints. Words matter. We believe that the written word of God, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, the scripture has been inspired by God and that the Bible serves as the final authority in the church for life and doctrine. That's what we believe here at this church. That's what's proclaimed from this pulpit. Where do we get this from? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 19 and 21 are two texts that immediately come to mind. The elders of this church believe in what's known as verbal plenary inspiration. What does that mean? It simply means that we believe every word of Scripture and all the words of Scripture are ultimately breathed out by God. And for this reason, because we believe that, we sometimes emphasize nuances of the grammar in the original languages, especially when that grammar bears doctrinal significance. That's why we do that sometimes. We have such an instance of that doctrinal significance in these simple but beautiful four words, you have been saved. You. It's a plural you. Paul's speaking to the church. And then what's translated for us as have been saved, there's, there's a Greek participle. It's in the perfect tense, which indicates that an action has been accomplished and that the accomplishment of that action has continuous results. The question is, what is that action? That action is salvation. That action is salvation. Furthermore, that same Greek participle was in the passive voice, which indicates that someone or something outside of the subject, the plural you, has acted upon that subject. Well, who is that someone or that something that is acting upon the subject? It is none other than God himself, as indicated again by the immediate context. God is the actor in this passage. And some grammarians call this the divine passive, as it indicates God acts God's activity when he is not explicitly mentioned in a text. Brothers and sisters, 
Let me try to pull this all together. Let's get away from that nerdy stuff and let me tell you why that matters. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, it is because you are graciously acted upon by God himself such that he accomplished your salvation. This salvation is an accomplished reality with continuing results such that your salvation is certain. That's why that matters. What a great God we have. Those four words, those two words in the Greek, say more to us than we care to realize at times, and they proclaim, they declare, your salvation is certain. Grammar matters, and we praise the Lord for his clear communication. Amen? The foundation of salvation is grace. The certainty of salvation is observed in the perfect passive participle of this text, and this brings us to the means of salvation. The means of salvation. Continuing on in verse 8, through faith. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. The basis of salvation is grace alone, and the means of salvation is faith alone. In other words, salvation is received, if you will, by faith. Or we could put it another way. We could say faith is the instrument by which one latches on to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what kind of faith is saving faith? What kind of faith is saving faith? To me, there seems to be three aspects, each of which must be present for one to have saving faith. There is indeed an intellectual aspect of saving faith, and this refers to the content of one's faith or those things that you believe. In the pastoral epistles, those are Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, Paul repeatedly will say things such as, teach these things or declare these things, showing that the sound doctrine or that sound teaching has certain content. We don't have a blind faith or an empty faith. As a matter of fact, a blind faith or an empty faith is not a saving faith. There must be biblical content to one's faith if it is a saving faith. However, this intellectual aspect of faith is not itself saving faith. There's also what I'd call an emotional or a convictional aspect of saving faith, which, ref which refers to your conviction that the content of your faith is true. We understand that one can know content of the Christian faith without believing it to be true, right? As a matter of fact, there are people who make a living writing commentaries about the Bible, and they don't believe a lick of it but they're great grammarians. So, so the intellect isn't enough. 
We understand there has to be a conviction. One who has a saving faith knows biblical content and is convinced that biblical content is true. However, the emotional or convictional aspect, along with the intellectual aspect of faith, is not yet saving faith. This is the third aspect. There is also a volitional aspect of saving faith. And this refers to your personal trust or your personal reliance upon the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in the gospel. We understand that knowing and believing the content of Christian faith is not enough for even the demons believe and shudder. James 2.19 So all three aspects the intellectual aspect, the emotional aspect, and the volitional aspect are present in saving faith. We could say it this way, that saving faith occurs by means of the Holy Spirit when one hears and receives the gospel into their heart such that their inner man, their mind, and their affections, and their will are transformed. And that trans and that transformation bears tangible fruit, or that transformation is expressed outwardly. Faith is the means of salvation. There is a saving faith. Where do we see this in Scripture? Where do we see these realities in Scripture? Let me turn to two texts that I think express well for us the idea of these aspects of saving faith. Let me look at Romans chapter 10. Feel free to turn there with me. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Notice that there's an internal, a heartfelt belief going on here. It's more than just intellect, but it's the seat of affection and of desire that with the heart one believes. And that belief expresses itself in an outward confession. But I think there's even another passage that more clearly displays this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Again, Paul's writing. And he speaks of this young church's vibrant faith. He says this, beginning in chapter 1, verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Here it is. This is after they've received the word. And how you turned 
to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They receive the word, they believe the word with their heart such that it expresses itself with a turning to God from idols such that they might serve the living and true God. Verse 10 concludes in to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is saving faith, an intellectual component, a convictional component, and a volitional component such that your life is radically changed. What a gift. What a great and mighty work of God. Brothers and sisters, grace is the foundation of salvation. God's activity is the certainty of salvation, and faith is the means of salvation. And this brings us to our fourth facet, the giver of salvation. Look with me at the end of verse 8, entering into verse 9. It says, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. And so what Paul does here is he gives us two negatives and one positive concerning the giver of salvation. So let us deal with the negatives first and then the positive. Negatively, verse 8 says, and this is not your own doing. And this is not your own doing. The debated question is, what does this refer to? Does this refer to faith? Or does this refer to grace? Or does this refer to something else? You can find different commentators and different lecturers who argue that this refers to either faith or to either grace, and they give their reasons why. But it seems that most commenters understand that this is referring back to the entire, to the entire preceding sentence or verses 4 through eight. And that seems to be right. Note, notice what Paul does throughout this letter. This is the same word in the Greek every time. In chapter 1, verse 15, he says, for this reason. And when he says for this reason in chapter 1, verse 15, he's not reaching back to the previous verse for a specific word or two. Rather, he's speaking of the entirety of what he's just said in verses 3 through 14. For this reading, for this reason, and then he continues. In chapter 3, verse 1, he does a very similar thing. For this reason. Well, for what reason? Not just a word from the previous verse, but rather for what he has communicated in verses 11 through 22 in chapter 2. He does the same thing in verse 15 of chapter 3. For this reason. Paul's using that word this over and over to reach back and to grasp concepts that he has just communicated beforehand such that he can logically continue on in his letter. It seems best to interpret this in our passage, verse 8, as referring back to the concept of salvation in the preceding verses beginning at verse 4. And this, that is this concept of salvation, the foundation being grace and the means being faith, this great salvation is not your own doing. 
the first part of verse 9 reinforces this idea, which is the second negative concerning the giver of salvation. Beginning of verse 9, he simply says, not a result of works. This, this concept of salvation is not a result of the work of man. He says similar things elsewhere. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, he says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He says in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Paul doesn't mince words. Paul communicates very clearly. Newsflash, brothers, sisters, and friends. Your salvation is not of you. Your salvation is not by you. Your salvation is not from you. You're not the giver of your salvation or anyone else's salvation. So who is? I'm glad you asked. Positively, he tells us in the last part of verse 8. Sandwiched between those two negatives, he positively tells us who this giver of salvation is. He says, it is the gift of God. It could even be translated, it, salvation that is, is the gift not of God, but from God. Listen to what Clinton Arnold says of this verse. He says, and I quote, salvation is a gift from God's abundant kindness and his lavish grace. There is nothing at all within us that has inclined God to choose us. There's absolutely nothing we have done to catch God's attention and earn his favor. It is entirely a gift with God expressed as the genitive of source. Of source. Genitive being a case in the Greek, translated in the ESV, of God. But he's saying it's not just a genitive of possession. It's not just something that God has, but rather it's a genitive of source. That God is the source of salvation, that it is from God. Answer me this. Is salvation a good gift? I need more than that. Is salvation a good gift? Amen. Now we're talking. This is what James says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Beloved, if we aim begin each and every one of our days meditating on the glorious gift of salvation from God through Christ 
by the Spirit. Tell me, will not that glorious meditation have some kind of effect on how you conduct yourself throughout your day? What humility, what gratitude, what joy, what life it brings to the Christian who dwells upon the gift of salvation. So we pray, Lord, help us. Lord, help us not to take these things for granted. Lord, help us to humble ourselves before you and be overwhelmed by the gracious gift you have granted us. May we never, may we never dare to consider our salvation, which is truly our salvation. May we never consider it as an entitlement. But may we simply be humbled by this great gift. Such a thought naturally leads us to the goal of salvation. Continuing in verse 9. If God is the giver of salvation, then the goal or the purpose or the end is simply this, so that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. Or a positive way of saying this is that God's glory is the goal of salvation. Beloved, the goal of salvation is that man might be silenced for just a moment. Such that God might be exalted in the hearts of his people. And only then will we boast. But that boasting will not be in ourselves. It will be in God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 through 31. And because of him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We live in a boasting and roasting culture, do we not? We witness and may ourselves be tempted to boast about everything we have done and about anything we have done. And, of course, if we don't have anything to boast about, then we'll do the next best, best thing, which is to roast those around you so that everyone is as miserable as you are. This is the culture of our day. Beware. Beware. For when we boast in anything other than God, we are actively attempting to rob God of his glory. And often, when we roast others, we attempt to harm God's image bearers. Both of these actions are motivated by pride. But the goal of salvation is that no one may boast. And in our inability to boast about our salvation or in ourselves because of our salvation, 
then God receives glory, and rightly so, for he alone is worthy. Beloved, grace is the foundation of salvation. God's work is the certainty of salvation. Faith is the means. God is the giver. And his glory is the goal. This brings us to our final facet, which is the practice of salvation. Look with me at verse 10. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. By the practice of salvation, I mean the practical realities that come as a result of God's salvation. And I have three subpoints under this heading your identity, your purpose, and your duty, all in Christ. Let's look at your identity in Christ. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. The term for works to connect this verse with the preceding two verses, which really provides further reason why salvation is a, work, is a work from God and not a work of man. The reason is because we are God's workmanship. We are his creation. We are his handiwork. The Greek word translated workmanship is poema. And in that word, you might hear a term you're familiar with. It's where we derive our English word, poem, from. This word presents God as one who is working creatively and beautifully and poetically as a poet would work on his literary masterpiece. God is doing this in those whom he has chosen to bring about his purposes and his plans to make those whom he chose before the foundation of the world, new creations in Christ. You know this verse, many of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Saint, where are you finding your identity this morning? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Christian, this text tells us that we are God's work of art, if you will in Christ Jesus, by his grace, and in that reality, I can rest. In that reality, I can relax, and I can rejoice. And from that reality, I can joyfully acknowledge my purpose. Your purpose in Christ. The verse continues, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand. 
God's workmanship is not achieved by your good works. Rather, your good works are a result of his workmanship. God's purpose for you in Christ is to display his grace by your works. Two hang-ups concerning this passage that I have heard Christians discuss. Number one is this. What good works or what kind of good works are being talked about here? And I would just encourage you, keep on reading. Keep on reading. It's going to tell us. Remember the first three chapters speaks of our position in Christ and the last three predominantly speaks of our practice in Christ. What kind of good works are you to do, saint? Well, just to name a few, husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Parents, rear your children in the admonition of the Lord. Don't cause them to be frustrated. Workers, work hard for your masters. It talks about the way we're supposed to talk in the context of the Christian community. We speak the truth in love. We don't bite and devour, on and on and on. These are the good works that are spoken of here. So oftentimes people try to make more out of it than it actually is. Simply love God and submit to his word. And his, his word describes these good works. Well, the second hang-up is this. How do I know which good works God prepared for me? How do I know which good works God prepared for me? The answer is because you did them. That's how you know. It's really that simple. That God gives you an opportunity to submit to his word, and you submit to his word by his grace and the power of his spirit, and you did it, and you could say, that's a good work I accomplished that God had prepared beforehand. What joy and what freedom there is in Christ if we understand that our identity is in Christ, that we simply have to walk by faith, live by faith, guided by his word and the power of his spirit, wherever our two feet might be, that we might simply submit to the word of God. Your purpose in Christ is to do good works and he prepared them beforehand for you. And so lastly, this is our duty in Christ. Our duty in Christ. The passage ends with that we should walk in them. In other words, there's an expectation for new creations in Christ. There was a way that you once walked. There was a way that you used to walk. We read of it earlier and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But now, there's a new way for you to walk. There's a new expectation that you are expected, yes, but also enabled to walk. You are to walk in the good works that God has prepared for you. And once we get to chapter 4, that's the vast majority of what's hit on. We are to walk. We are to walk. We are to walk. We are to walk in unity. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. 
We're to walk in holiness, chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. We're to walk in love, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. We are to walk in the light, chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. We are to walk in wisdom, chapter 5, verses 15 through chapter 6, verse 9. Saints, let me read this passage in its entirety again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's explanation of why in the ages to come he will show off the vast glory of his immeasurable grace toward those in Christ is simply because the whole of salvation is from him. The sum of salvation is through him. The entirety of salvation is to him so that you and I might learn to humble ourselves before God and that we might learn to boast only in him and that he might be our sole delight. For when the vastness of God's grace toward those in Christ is on display in the ages to come everlastingly, there we will be humbled and there he will be adored. There we will boast only in him and there he will be our sole delight. So, May we exclusively worship God for your salvation is exclusively from God. Lord, would you help us to worship you in spirit and truth? Would you help us to be humbled before you, to think deeply upon this great gift of salvation such that we would be overjoyed and overwhelmed by how great you have been toward us. The immeasurable riches of your grace are on display and will be on display in the ages to come everlastingly. I pray for this church specifically, Lord. I pray for the saints in my hearing now that you would, by way of reminder, lead us this week to consider how great a salvation we have. And Lord, for those who have heard of this great salvation, for those who have heard of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but know you not, even now, would you impress upon their hearts that their purpose is to glorify you and they will only be satisfied if and when they do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.